Hello, hello, it's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. I'm here with Dr. Ron Ross from NIST. Dr. Ross, how are you today? Oh, Jacob, I'm doing great, and it's, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. And folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to like, comment, subscribe, share, review, all the things. And thanks in advance, it really helps me out. What do you think are some of the top challenges today in federal cybersecurity compliance? Well, that's a that's a great question. It's, it's a very difficult one to answer because, you know, when you try to answer that question, the one thing I always try to do is not to be critical of what people have done in the past. You know, cybersecurity, it never used to be called that. It used to be called information security or computer security back three or four decades ago. But we really have a long, long history of hundreds and thousands of people that have produced such cutting edge work over the years that have brought us a long way. But there are some things looking back over those four or five decades now that upon reflection, and this is just my personal opinion, that we might have done differently to get us to a different point. I think the big thing that we didn't realize back when all of the security work started is nobody anticipated the explosive growth in the technology. We always knew the technology advanced over the years, but the pace and the level of that innovation and all of that capability in the tech sector, I think that even surprised the experts. And even in the last 10 years, you can see just a massive advancement. We've made in computing power, yes. secondary storage devices and all of that, communications capability going from 3 to 4 to 5G and now looking at 6G down the road. And all of that developed systems that were overwhelmingly complex. And that is, I think, where our processes started to break down a little bit. If you were to roll the clock back 30 or 40 years ago, the private sector was developing the first trusted operating system. And those worked really well, but they were specialized in the operating system area. And then we started to grow our systems and networks and all the connectivity that we have and the capability, that complexity became overwhelming. And, and what we see today is that's the primary reason why the adversary continues to have the advantage long-term because our systems and our networks keep on growing with greater capabilities. It's great for business. It's great for government because we're more innovative. We're bringing better services and things to our customers worldwide, but it comes with a price. And the price that we're starting to see is that these complex systems now through cyber physical convergence are controlling a lot of mechanical systems. For example, the braking system in your car uh, or the pacemaker in your chest. And when you have that cyber physical convergence and when there's a problem, like in the good old days, you'd have the blue screen of death. But in the blue screen of death, nobody actually died. Now, if you've got a system of failure, a vulnerability that's exploited by an adversary that causes either exfiltration or a loss of capability, uh, that could have a critical, a severe catastrophic effect, which could literally shut down the grid, shut off that pacemaker. It, mm -hmm. Lives are at stake today. And I think that connection and our dependence on that technology, our failure to address and manage complexity, that to me is the number one mm -hmm. issue going forward. We could talk more about how to address some of those, but I think that to me would be my primary focus of how we're looking forward from today. That's very insightful. Thank you. Over the last several years, in my experience at least, and I come from a DoD perspective, I've seen a positive shift in security culture. And I think much of that is to your credit over at NIST. Back in the day, it used to be, okay, we'll get this cybersecurity stuff done, this ATO work done, and it's a fire and forget exercise. And then three years, the system has changed enormously. We have no idea what's going on. There's still more work to do there for sure. But how can we in cybersecurity enable positive positive security culture in an organization? Well, I think it starts with education and 
commitment on behalf of the senior leadership. You know, you can go to any organization today and, and they're going to say cybersecurity is important. We know it's important. We're doing everything we can. But it really depends on what you actually do. You can say it's important, but then what actions do you take to really make a difference? And that's why I think one of the things that's hurt us over the last years, at least since FISMA was passed in 2003, is that cybersecurity was stovepiped in a kind of a narrow focus in organizations. And you can see it everywhere you go. Every CISO in the federal government works pretty much for the CIO's office because that's where the legislation placed that particular function under the CIO's office. The problem with doing that is that you don't have your cybersecurity talent spread out across the entire organization where they can make a difference. So when you talk about acquisitions, for example, or systems engineering, or any of the management functions that take place in an organization, there's a security component to all of those. And so one of the things I think we have to do is take security out of the stovepipe and get those skills spread out all the way across the organization. So when you're doing an acquisition action within an organization, you've got a security professional that can actually look at that set of requirements and say, do we have the appropriate security requirements defined within this RFP or whatever the contract that we're negotiating at that time? So without that, when you have everybody in a stovepipe, it's like you can't get the job done the way it needs to be done. And that's one of the big things that we probably can control, but it may be a little difficult because the way PISMA has left uh, that structure within most federal organizations. And I think that's reflected pretty much the same in the private sector from what I can see. Very, very true at a micro level from a small business perspective. It's so critical. Even if your company's 20 people or less, it's so critical that you integrate your cybersecurity into the business processes because you might have a great picture when it comes to assessment time, but over time, that is going to fall off if you're not in those processes and uh, making sure people are making the right decisions, that they are reminded to make those right decisions. I really appreciate your input on that. Well, the other thing I was going to mention along that same line is that I believe we've also taken more of a tactical view on cybersecurity. You know, we focus on vulnerability scanning and boundary protection and multi-factor authentication, encryption, all those things are good things. But what's been lacking is a strategic view of the problem set. I think you're starting to see that now. And there's also been a lack, since that is not a strategic focus and more tactical, there's also been a lack of focus on what I call the systems engineering part of the problem, where you actually build hardware, software, firmware, and systems. And when you don't have a primary engineering focus, where security is just kind of part of that overall engineering team, part of the overall process of looking at cost, schedule, and performance for products and systems and services, then that stovepipe's not going to give you that breadth and depth you need to be able to solve those types of problems. We're starting to see a little bit of that with the zero trust architecture and concepts. It's really taking, instead of trying to defend the boundary, which is very porous now, it's kind of a one-dimensional view of protection. Penetration resistance, you put all your marbles in that basket, and then we discover fairly soon that the adversary can get inside your system pretty much whenever they want. Maybe not all the adversaries, but certainly the ones that are nation-state level, highly skilled, highly resourced, and you couple that with these massively complex systems, You've given them an attack surface that is just very wide and deep, and they can pretty much pick where they want to go. So with that one-dimensional strategy, you're doomed to failure because you continue to pile up vulnerabilities that you know about, and then you're left with trying to handle thousands of vulnerabilities, racking and stacking, prioritizing them, and you're drowning 
your security teams and trying to close those vulnerabilities. That's yeah. one of the byproducts of complexity. Mm -hmm. The other part of that problem in the complex world of systems is that since that attack space is getting so massive, your opportunities for zero-day vulnerabilities goes up exponentially. And so the bigger the attack surface gets by adding more applications and different connections and all of that, you're now giving the adversary pretty much free run across that attack service to do damage. And the only way you can deal with that is to reduce and manage complexity through good systems engineering processes, security engineering, software engineering, and to try to reduce those weaknesses and deficiencies. Because every time you do that, some of those might be zero days and some of those might end up being known vulnerabilities if they're exploited by the adversary. But the bottom line is you close down those weaknesses and deficiencies and that helps the end user, the customers, because they have less problems to deal with on their end. And it's a huge problem that single dimension protection strategy that we've relied upon for decades, we are now starting to understand that is not going to protect us. So we're looking for what I call the multi-dimensional strategy. Protect the boundary with good cyber hygiene, but if it fails and it will fail, what do you do once the adversary is inside? And now you're into that architectural, they're inside your house. What are you going to do? How do you yeah. slow them down? How do you increase their work factor? And all of those things are part of that damage limitation, second dimension, that leads to that third dimension of true system and cyber resiliency, which means you can operate in a degraded or debilitated state, uh, maybe not with complete mission capability, but at least you can live along until you can uh, reconstitute and regroup. And, and that's really pretty essential, especially for these critical assets and critical systems that are part of our critical infrastructure, part of our critical federal systems, and for that matter, part of our economic engine that keeps this country running. What would be your definition of zero trust? People call it different names. I mean, the original architect of the concepts, I guess, the principles, John Kindervig, quite some time ago, it's come back in a full court press to the feds and the private sector over the last couple of years now. It's probably been two or three years and it really had a resurgence. But to me, there's nothing in the zero trust concepts and principles that were not there 40 years ago in those design principles and concepts that are listed in the back of 80160. They're focused now on a particular aspect of the architecture. And then this SD207 document, 80207, now lays out a lot of those zero trust concepts and principles. And of course, John's original work in that now all coming together. But the most important thing is it's the architectural focus that we talked about. That's getting below the waterline. And it also talks about something I alluded to earlier. We've been right on a single dimension protection strategy for the past 40 years. You, you basically try to harden the perimeter, but if that failed, you're basically SOL and you're at the mercy of the atmosphere. Now, what Zero Trust has done, it starts to move down that multi-dimension protection strategy because we collapse that outer perimeter and we put that perimeter, we shrink it to smaller and smaller resources. Mm -hmm. We're still applying the same security controls, the authorization, access control, continuous monitoring. All of those things are still being applied, but they're applied to smaller and smaller resources. I use an analogy. I've used this hundreds of times. It's like mm -hmm. having a lock on your front door. That lock won't stop most bad guys from either kicking your door in or picking the lock. And once they're inside, what does it look like from their perspective? Well, most of the time, your valuable assets are just strewn everywhere in the house. They can go through and they can just wipe you out. Mm -hmm. But what if they came through the front door and every room in your house had a vault or a safe in that room? Mm -hmm. Now, they've got to go attack each one of those vaults or safe. That's like a security domain. That's kind of what Zero Trust is doing. You're making the adversary work harder. You're increasing the work fact. We talk about this as part of damage limitation because once they're inside now, 
if you've got a zero trust architecture, they can't just run across that system in a transitive attack and then jump to the next system. They're going to have to go through and really work for every one of those security domains to try to get in. So it slows down their lateral movement. And I also talk about that in terms of network segmentation, system segmentation, and micro segmentation. You're breaking down your resource into smaller and smaller pizzas. But the other part of that in damage limitation is reducing the time on target. We have a lot of work today in virtualization technique. We have micro virtualization. So we're now able to virtualize smaller and smaller pieces of the system. And if we use some of that rapid refresh technology, you can basically clean out malicious code very quickly as that virtual component is refreshed. And if you do that very rapidly, now you're reducing the adversary's time on target because they have to go through a very well-defined attack sequence. And if I can flush that code out very quickly, I'm breaking that chain right where the adversary will die on site. So the combination of that horizontal and vertical uh, damage limitation, that's kind of where the zero trust architecture is moving. Now, I will say one thing, zero trust architecture does not do a lot to limit the complexity of systems. So the real challenge is going to be as federal agencies and private sector organizations try to implement those concepts and principles, how are they doing it? Is it part of a larger architectural exercise? And if that's the case, then they can reduce some of that complexity while they're moving to that zero trust architecture. You basically find every system that is not a necessary connection. You have a lot of different system connections. We found that in some of the federal work that DHS did after one of the very serious cyber attacks, they went through every federal agency and they said, tell me all the systems you have and what they're connected to. They found out a lot of systems they didn't know they had, and they found a lot of things that were connected to things they didn't need to be connected to. Remember those two things I said were foundational, least privilege, least functionality. You're always trying to get smaller and smaller because it's easier to defend systems that are less complex. That was the original thought behind thin client. You kind of plumps your capability and your functions down to something that only needs to do this, X, Y, and Z. I don't want a lot of other stuff because when I bring in all the other stuff, like on your smartphone, how many people have applications? They have no idea who wrote those, what code libraries were used. It's a nightmare. It takes a lot of discipline, though, to reduce and manage complexity. But zero trust, it's going to go a long way to doing some of the things that we talked about today. What do you think will be the top benefits of large language models, ChatGPT, for example? And what's your view on that overall? Well, this brings back a lot of fond memories because the Army, she sent me to school to get my PhD in computer science, and they had me specialized in artificial intelligence and robotics. And that was back in 1985. I, I got my degree in 89, so I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur. But I even remember back then, there was a lot of hype with AI back in those days. But to be fair, we've come light years from that time. And, and so a lot of the things that you're seeing today with artificial intelligence represent true advancement and in innovations of things that now those large language models are, are capable of doing, although there are still some limitations. But what I remind people all the time is that these AI programs like ChatGPT, those are just applications. You can run an application on your system anytime, but again, how many people understand what the application is really doing? What is the application interface with? This is why we go back to least functionality, least privileges. And one of our controls on defining the applications that are allowed to run and not letting anything else run on your system. 
The reason we do that is because you want to limit the number of applications that you run to things that you absolutely need. Again, least functionality, uh, least privilege, and try to cut that attack surface down by eliminating those unnecessary applications. So if you decide you need ChatGPT, then what that application actually doing? What is it interfacing with? What outputs are coming out of that? And is there an attack vector that adversaries can use through that AI application that is now finding its way through your system? That's not just an AI application problem. That's any application. It's kind of like cloud computing uh, a decade ago. There was a lot of hype starting out, but cloud computing was real. It provided great innovation. It provided a way to reduce your resources to more or less on demand. AI is going to be in that same category. People are going to be experimenting. There's going to be a lot of people that overestimate what the capabilities are. There'll be a lot of mistakes made. There are a lot of things that are a little frightening down the road that maybe AI programs, if not controlled and turned loose, can do without user intervention. Yeah. Uh, but again, these are still finite state machines. These are still computing devices, whether it's an AI program or not, are still running on that finite state platform. So the fundamentals for cybersecurity have not changed. And so that's one thing I would recommend anybody using that new technology. Just understand what it's doing. And more important, what, where are the outputs going and can you trust the outputs? What are you doing with the outputs? And if the adversary is some way controlling what those outputs are, we've seen that in some of the attacks on the power plants where they present an operator display that looks like one thing is happening when in reality something else is happening. And the operator, it causes them to take an action they shouldn't be taking, but they're reacting to what they're seeing on the screen. So there's all mm -hmm. kinds of new things that are going to happen that we just have to be aware of and be a little bit cautious as we move forward. Not just run down the road with our hair on fire. Be a little more cautious, I, I would recommend. Thank you. In line with that, what would you say are the top evolving cyber threats? It's really not an evolving threat, but it really, to me, is the one that dominate our level of concern. At least it should. And that's this notion of complexity. Mm -hmm. Because as your infrastructure grows and your system grows through applications and middleware and connections and all the things mm -hmm. that are really a byproduct of innovation and trying to build better businesses and more innovation and serve your customers, that's a normal thing that happens. But we have to be also aware of the thing we talked about early on. We have a total dependence on computing technology. There virtually is no business, no government agency, nothing that we do can be done without that computing technology. And the electric grid also powering that computing technology. We have that fear of the electronic pulse weapon that could wipe out the entire grid yeah. structure, which would take out all the computers. Those are nightmare scenarios that you don't like to think about. But something we can't control is this notion of complexity. Not easy to do, but every time that attack surface gets larger and larger, it's more difficult with our limited resources. We have limited talent and resources in our cybersecurity army of folks that we're putting up to defend these really critical systems and networks and part of our infrastructure. So we have to help our cyber warriors. We have to give them a level playing field to do the job. And I think that's something under the control of every senior leader asking those important questions. How do we accomplish our mission? But also, as the other side of that coin, how do we make sure that mission can be protected as it needs to be? That's the true mark of a good risk management decision. A credible risk-based decision has to balance mission and mission protection. And again, that's part of that cost schedule performance uh, discussion that keeps people up and awake at night. But to me, instead of listing a bunch of evolving cyber threat, if we could solve this problem of yeah. complexity and you can reduce that attack surface, that will take a whole 
legion of known vulnerabilities off the table. It will also take a whole legion of zero-day vulnerabilities off the table that will never get to the point where those deficiencies can be exploited by an adversary. And we didn't talk about the fact that once the adversary has breached your perimeter, they can not only exploit zero-day vulnerabilities that are part of your enterprise, your systems, they can also create new vulnerabilities that they can come back at a point in time of their choosing to actually exploit that vulnerability. Maybe they want to bring your system down now, but maybe they want to do it as part of a coordinated attack on the grid or a coordinated mm -hmm. attack on some of our critical infrastructure sectors. Mm -hmm. This, again, is why it's critical to manage and reduce complexity. It has to be a full court press on that because given our normal druthers and how we love technology and how we're addicted to it, we will not manage and reduce that complexity unless we're forced to do so. What are Dr. Ross's top five critical security controls? Well, if you're killing me on this, because there's a long history of the use of critical controls. My, my good friend, Alan Paller, uh, who mm -hmm. passed away not too long ago, he and I used to have a running battle about security controls. He would say, you know, I love your catalog, but it's got too much stuff in it. He said, can't you, can't you prioritize those darn controls instead of having 2,000 to look at just prioritizing? Well, we fought that for years. We had good public debates about it. It was always in, in good spirits and everything. But as time went on, we actually did put priority codes in 853. We had the priority codes were one, two, or three. I think we had a zero code as well. And then Alan, under the SANS Institute, ended up developing the 20 critical controls. And that became very, very popular. And those controls were reflected in the catalog of 853 controls. But his idea was to look at people can't be overwhelmed with all the complexity in the catalog. They got to start somewhere. So he said, this is what we're going to do. And I fought it for years on it. But then over time, I said, you know, that's probably a good idea because there are a lot of things to do. We need to do that. So now you've made my challenge even more difficult because instead of 20, you're asking <laughs> me for five. So, but I'll answer that in the context of our discussion today. Uh, certainly it's very difficult to come up with five, but if you had to put me up against the wall and make me do that, I would say number one would be a control on security architecture and making sure that you get your arms around your system and your security architecture, because that gets to the heart of complexity, the zero trust discussion we had today, basically getting your arms around what you have to deal with as far as your enterprise. Now, right after that, I would say, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the, the first couple of 20 critical controls in the SANS that they had published years after, configuration management and control. In other words, having an inventory of everything on your system and your network, all the software applications, all the network devices, because if it's not being managed and you don't know about it, that could be an attack vector that is totally off your radar. That would be number two. The third one would be consistent, again, with reducing and managing complexity, least functionality, getting rid of every port, protocol, service, application, anything that's not essential for carrying out your missions and business operations, get rid of it. It's hard to do sometimes, but it's part of that discipline and structure of the basic blocking and tackling that you have to have in order to get your arms around that problem and reduce the attack surface. Right on the heels of that would be least privilege. Only give privileges, especially privileged access, only give that to people who absolutely need to have that for mission business operations. And we see that violated all the time. People have way too many privileges, and especially when you come to things that are very sensitive, that needs to be even a smaller and smaller trusted set of individuals. Because again, it's like expanding your attack service. Every new individual on there with privileges, more attack surface, more things that can go wrong.
That's number four. Number five would be, um, let's see, strong access control and authentication and authorization. That's part of that zero trust we talked about. When you have that zero trust concepts and, and principles, and you've got that architecture defined and you have all the components defined now, you want to apply strong access control authorization to those smaller, more well-managed security domains. And then if I can get one bonus, uh, sure. one bonus control, it would be that contingency plan or that incident response plan. A lot of people put that down on the priority list, but one thing you can be guaranteed, if your system has not been breached up to this point, you can guarantee that it will be breached sometime in the future. Maybe at a time when you don't expect. Get that contingency plan written and make sure it's exercised. You know, tabletop exercises. Go through and in the Army, we used to have a saying, you fight in combat as you train. So that army training you go through every day becomes like it's on autopilot. When a cyber attack happens, you're basically sliding down that pole and you're like an autopilot. So you can't be going and reading that contingency plan or that incident response plan the first time after the incident happens. It has to be part of your culture, the way you do business, exercise them, train, and you know what's going on because if you're doing it for the first time, you will not execute. It's not going to have a great outcome. That's my bonus recommendation. Thank you. Well, I guess if you see across the web, Dr. Ross's top five, <laughs> you'll know where it came from, I suppose. <laughs> awesome. Could you give some advice to the folks who are just starting out in cybersecurity and they want to go down the cybersecurity track and learn and uh, have a career in this? Could you share some wisdom you've accumulated over the years? Well, I get the first thing that happened to me and this Again, I always, I have two things that I always advise anybody I talk to. I talk to a lot of younger folks today. Of course, anybody I talk to is younger. You know, I'm looking back at 72 years old. But uh, I would say, no matter what you do in life, whether you want to hang drywall or be an electrician or a plumber or be in the trades, or whether you want to be a computer scientist or some kind of electrical engineer or a lawyer or doctor, get grounded in the fundamentals. In other words, get really good at your trade craft, no matter what it is. And the second thing I would I would recommend is always be a life learner. No matter where you start out, get the blocking and tackling down first and then continue to learn over the course of your career because things are going to change. Now, in my case, I was sent to school to get my PhD in computer science. I was supposed to become a program manager for the Army's autonomous vehicle program. We were building autonomous vehicles. They were explosive ordnance type vehicles, the, the robots that would try to disarm those, the bombs and all the things. And at the very last minute, I mean, the very last minute, I got a call from the Department of the Army. They said, you know, the guy that's currently in that job has decided not to leave that job. He's going to extend for a year. So go find yourself something else to do. Well, I just spent years in grad school and with computer science, AI, and robotics. And now I got to go find a job. So I called my buddies at NSA and I said, you got any jobs over there for a computer guy? Said, yeah, come on there. We've got lots of jobs. And that was 1990. I knew nothing literally nothing about computer security. But going back to my basic principles, you get grounded in the fundamentals. Most things in computer security outside of maybe policy development or some of the software side are grounded in computer science, mathematics, electrical engineering, computer engineering. So if you're prone to that stem side of the house and you like those kinds of things, then get grounded in those technical fundamentals because security is built on top of all of that, whether it's mathematics for crypto or whether it's computer and, and electrical engineering for, you know, understanding how computers are built, how software is built, how it executes on those individual computing machines and the gates and the registers and all that going mm -hmm. down to the integrated circuits. The place that I went to school taught us everything from the software all the way down 
through the electrical components. And when you have that understanding, you're very comfortable discussing all these issues and you can kind of pivot to a different era. And that's what I did. And then my second principle, one thing I tend to say is now I, I became a life learner. I, I talked to everybody that I possibly could. And we had some of the world's experts there just happened to be at the same place that I was when I walked through the door, not knowing anything. And I just sat in the office for hours and picked their brain and they were very generous with their time. And that's something else I think is important to some of the older, more established folks out there, always try to give back to the younger generation. They may not approach you. They may be too uh, afraid to come up to you and talk to you, but reach out to them and maybe start that conversation. And if someone does approach you, this is an investment of the future of our country. In my case, it's cybersecurity. To me, there's almost nothing more important because everything we do in the future going forward, whether it's protecting our weapon systems from attack or our critical infrastructure, our economic and national security are really dependent upon having the next generation cyber warriors coming yeah. through the pipeline and becoming well-grounded, understanding how the systems will build, what it takes to protect them, and then becoming continuous learners over the course of their career. Looking back over 32, almost 33 years now, you could not ask for a more exciting field to be in. And there are lots of different jobs in cybersecurity, whether you want to be a security engineer or a cryptographer, or you want to write policy. The important thing is to figure out where your skill set is. What do you feel most comfortable doing? Because you know, you're going to be doing it for a long time, and hopefully you'll love the thing that you do. But if you're lucky enough to find a career that you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's what I fell into. Now, it's not easy for everybody, but you got to take that first step. And so whether you're on the young person side, looking, or whether you're an older person, mentoring is just as important as it ever was. We got to have that to kind of connect the two generations and carry some of those critical principles like assurance. Assurance has been largely forgotten about over the past two decades. We're still talking about it because some of us old folks remember what it was and, and we, we haven't let it go. We now articulate those important concepts in Special Club 800 160. And so that's kind of how, how I feel about the, the future and mentoring and all that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Any last thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I think it's been great. I, I, I really appreciate taking the time for this kind of long for podcast. I know it's a long time to listen, but there's so much to talk about in our field. And we have so many tremendous professionals in the field of cybersecurity, whether they're working in federal agencies or private sector, academic mm -hmm. uh, universities. I have such respect and appreciation for all those people in the trenches that do this job every day. It's not easy. They get up and they're underappreciated, probably underpaid in many cases. And my job has always been the easy job of developing the standards and the guidelines. The hard part is doing the things that you do and all your colleagues through the trenches. And I, I take my hat off to them. I salute them. And I hope to be able to serve and make their lives easier uh, in the future. And again, thanks for this extended time today. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care.